You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I have spent my entire working life as a member of the media. I've never done anything else. You might assume, if I did that job well, over the course of my career, I would build more and more trust with audiences as I proved myself to be a reliable source for news and context and analysis and all the other stuff we want from the media. But no, not at all. It turns out that the first day of my journalism career was also probably the day I was the most trusted. Because that day was back in 2002 sometime, and trust in the media as a whole, in journalists and reporters and the brands we associate with delivering the news, has been steadily declining since before I was ever a lowly little intern. I think about that a lot. I think about the reasons for it, the ones the media and journalists can control, and I think about all the ones we can't. I often wonder, because of when I started my career, what it must have felt like to begin your career at a time when delivering the news was one of the most important and trusted occupations in our society. When things were true to most people because you said them. And what it must have felt like to end your career in the Trump era being told that you and your organization are bought and paid for, that you're fake news, and that the media just lies. Now, there aren't many people in the country who can speak to that. But today, I've got one. You will probably recognize his voice. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Peter Mansbridge, a Canadian journalism legend, longtime <laughs> host of CBC's The National, of course. Now, I was going to say newly, but it's been a few years now, right, Peter, that you've three, been a podcaster. Three years uh, into my fourth year podcasting with uh, Sirius XM. And you, uh, it's called The Bridge, and you get to do uh, sit-down interviews like this one, where you get to take your time in a way I guess you probably didn't before. Exactly. You know, I was, you know, in the land of the kind of two-minute news item. Right. And the occasional feature interview, but they rarely ran longer than 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, and now it sort of, sort of go as long as you want, right? right. I mean, that's the, the beautiful beauty of the world of podcasting. I usually try to keep them in the 30 to 40-minute range. Mm-hmm. And explore whoever the guest is. Just go for it. Well, I mean, the reason I wanted to talk to you, uh, aside from obviously your eminent status as a, you know, Canadian newscasting legend, but it's because I've been trying to wrap my head around uh, the loss of trust in journalism as an institution. And I thought you would be a great place to start because, um, like it or not, for a long time, you were kind of the face of news or at least one of them in this Mm -hmm. country. So I wonder if if you felt that in any way, that loss of trust, if it manifested in your work or in your life as uh, you moved into the later parts of your career? Well, it started with, you know, when I, when I started in the anchoring business in the early 1980s, trust in journalism was at its high point. Mm-hmm. It was up there with, or at least close to, doctors and nurses and firefighters. But it... It started to drop in the 90s. 
not precipitously, but it started. Mm -hmm. And it started with the kind of explosion of news channels, the explosion of um, uh, television channels overall, the introduction of the Internet, and we progress on to, you know, streaming, et cetera, et cetera. And with more and more things available to inform yourself, some of them were dicey, still are, mm -hmm. as a result of the Internet, social media, all of that. Some of it's been fantastic for information. Some of it's been questionable. And so we've seen the introduction of misinformation and disinformation. And all of that has led to a, uh, you know, a reckoning, really, on the trust basis. And not just for journalism, but basically for all national yeah. institutions. But journalism is something we so desperately need to be a pillar of democracy. I, I know it's kind of a worn-out phrase, but it's, it's true. Um, but when you see numbers dropping from the kind of mid to high 70s, which was the case, and I'm talking about percent trust mm -hmm. um, in the early 80s, to what it is now closer to 50. And sometimes, depending on which survey you're looking at, it's below 50. That is perilous. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure that journalism as a whole is taking it seriously enough on how to deal with it. When do you think that that really, I, I know it was kind of a slow shift, but when it really started to tip, and I ask this because um, you were kind of tangentially uh, a part of the very early part of my journalism career when I worked on the specials desk at Canadian Press, which was like doing agate and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I would have to do every night is watch The National and watch uh, Lloyd Robertson on CTV mm -hmm. and write down each story that came across and then mark off whether the Canadian press had covered it or not. Um, and that would have been like 2002, 2003. And I was thinking about it as I prepped for this interview. That was kind of maybe the last era where there was like one source of truth for the news, right? Nothing broke on Twitter back then. But in, by, the, by the time you walked away in 2017, there was almost nothing. And I don't mean to disparage the national, but nothing that would come out on like a nightly news broadcast that was actually like news for the very first time, right? Like we're just getting word out of Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever. It would have come on social media. The story would have developed over the day and people would have tuned into the national to see how you handled it or the CBC handled it. But it wouldn't have been, you know, here it is. This is coming from the CBC at 9 p.m. It's the truth. Yeah, generally, I have no disagreement with that. It really started with the power of, uh, of social media kind of taking over the space of, um, you know, breaking news. And there was this kind of clumsy effort on the part of traditional media to match a kind of Twitter style mm. in the way they went about news. And that was disastrous because it just led to this beginning of the, the, the real precipitous drop in, in trust. What was happening by the time I was leaving, networks were scrambling, television networks were scrambling, uh, as print had already done, scrambling, trying to find what is the solution to the fact we're losing audience. You know, what do we have to do? And there were some, there were some not, not very pretty examples of, uh, of new ways of doing things that didn't work. What, what do you think of when you think of those? Can you give me a couple of examples? Well, I don't have to look much further than... <laughs> 
<laughs> than the CBC. <laughs> you know, I, I argued very strongly when I retired and I gave him a year's notice that they should s- stay with a single anchor format. Mm. Um, that at the network level, that's what's always worked. Whether it was here, States, UK, single anchor. People place their trust. They don't necessarily like the person, but they've determined that that person they can trust. Right. It's not a popularity contest. It's a trust contest. When you start mixing it up in both the format, the look of the program, the kind of items that you're you're going after, plus having what in the case of the CBC was four anchors, you're totally confusing everybody. Hmm. You know, I, it was hard for me because I was supportive of the four people they picked. They were yep. all friends of mine and 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 uh, basically really good journalists. But I, I didn't like the format. But I was leaving and, you know, there's sure. only so much you can do. But there were examples everywhere. I think the, the earlier point I was making was not about people, but it was about the, the type of news right. that you were going after. And the more it started to look like social media and especially kind of a Twitter look at news, the more trouble you got yourself into. And not only that, there was younger people had abandoned television. Mm -hmm. When they wanted to know what was going on, they looked at their phones. Right. And they looked at social media. And they looked at forms of social media that you couldn't trust and you shouldn't trust. So that just caused this chaotic scene in the in 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 the in the news business and the distribution of news. Did the CBC ever try to get you to be on Twitter, be active, engage on oh, yeah. social media? I can remember the day it started for me. I mean, they'd bug me about you should get on Facebook or you should get on Twitter. It's good for, you know, getting our name out there and your name and blah, blah, blah. And I resisted. Not because I was thinking deeply about all this, but because I just, <laughs> I couldn't figure out how to do it all. And, uh, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't into it. But the royal wedding of Kate and Will. Right. Somebody told me in the middle of the, the program, because it was one of those long, drawn-out royal wedding things, and I was in London. And um, one of the, you know, the, the, the people working in the, uh, in the studio at Buckingham Palace, where we were just outside, uh, said... Oh, you're trending on Twitter. And I didn't have any idea what that even meant at the time. Um, but I guess I'd be, you know, been having a good time doing the program. And, you know, it was funny at times, which is unusual for me to have mm-hmm. the, that ability to show that side of me. And so I joined that day, that very day, and quite enjoyed it when I'd figured out how to do it, but then realized that this could eventually be a problem especially for journalists who started using social media and Twitter, especially to give their own opinions about stuff. Mm. I, I can recall doing a thing at, um, at the Monk School at the, okay. here yeah. in Toronto, yep. at the University of Toronto, with a, a 100 postgrad students and asking them, what is it you don't like about traditional media? And they went through the whole list of, you know, it's fake, it's biased, it's give your opinion too much. Not me personally, but, you know, just Mm -hmm. journalists in general. Um, And I said, where are you getting all this stuff? And they said, Facebook, Twitter. And that's when I, you know, I, I, I kind of doubled down on this feeling that we're not realizing what's happening here. Mm -hmm. We're losing a potentially really important part of our audience, which is 
you know, young people coming up. And I'm not talking about teenagers or even early 20s. I'm like yep. up to 40. It's been going on for a while now. Yeah, exactly. So all those things have contributed to this problem. And it is a problem. Do you think that um, it's, I mean, I know it's unfortunate, but how do you solve the problem of the more people who work in the business allow themselves to be people online? Because listen, and I said this on this program a lot, I don't necessarily consider myself a journalist anymore because I just interview people, but I'm also never shy about like journalists are biased. They have opinions, even if they don't tell you them, they still think things about it. Uh, we just never used to give them a venue for them to show the world their opinions. And it seems to me like the more they do that, the less people trust them. How do you resolve it? Well, you, you tell them they can't do that. Hmm. You know, if they're working for you, for a legitimate news organization, we we don't want you out there unless you're in a an opinion role. You know, if you're host of a show, let's say, sure. that is, uh, you know, an, an opinion-related show, that can drive... Audiences you can get people, you know, uh, involved. There's a big schism in journalism right now in terms of like oh, yeah. young versus traditional journalists who believe that, you know, their opinions and and I really I identify with this a bit that that your opinions and your your views on what's going on in the world shape who you are and who you are shapes how you cover it. So it's going to factor into your work regardless of whether or not you hide those opinions on social media. Yeah, I'd go. I wouldn't go the whole way with you on that. Okay. Um, I, I I do agree uh, that there's a role within the media for opinion-based shows or opinion-based columns. I mean, mm -hmm. newspapers have dealt with this for years, right? They have opinion pages and they have uh, journalists, columnists who write opinion, but they always used to protect their front page and their news okay. pages that the process was different and they didn't want opinion, that there had to be somewhere for readers, viewers, listeners to go to have an unfiltered, in terms of biased, look at the news. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I came from that old school, if you wish. And once you started to lose that, you had a problem. Um, I agree with you that... Everyone ha carries a certain bias with it. I mean, when you go to journalism school, they don't neuter you from <laughs> bias, yeah. from opinion. You know, you have you have feelings, and there are some stories those can't be taken away from you, especially stories where there's clear harm being done to people. Mm -hmm. Could be through a natural disaster. Could be through war. When you you know, and I've I've done these things, and you you see people who are not a part of the conflict or a part of uh, the reason there was some, some kind of disaster, they've been impacted by it. You know, their kids have died, or, mm -hmm. you know, maimed in some terrible fashion. You can't see that knowing how it happened and not talk about it. Mm -hmm. So th those things affect you. But when you're dealing with issues of public policy, mm. which is a lot of what journalism covers and should cover, you have to be able to find a way to lay any personal views you have on it aside and lay out the facts as best they are known to those who want to understand it and let them decide. You know, it's not that challenging to be able to do that. And there needs to be somewhere you can go for that. But at the moment, you know, a lot of people, most people, I haven't seen the latest stats, but most people don't think we do that. Mm-hmm. 
That yeah. it's that that part of what we used to do has disappeared. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You want to hear a really interesting stat that I found while looking looking at who trusts the media and who doesn't. People who are facing financial hardship, 68% of them report low trust in the media. People who are financially well off, uh, only 40% report low trust. So there's a a big schism there that if if you're doing poorly economically, um, you're skeptical of everything you hear from the media. And for those who are in in some form of dire straits, they probably don't trust anyone. Yeah, it is true across other institutions as well. Uh, and, and and the media has to accept that as the challenge. You know, I mean, people say, and I know you, you're heading towards that. The question of okay, so what do we do about it? That's yeah, that's <laughs> about what I was about to ask you. Right. I mean, my my own feeling is that we're not transparent enough. That we've never been transparent enough about how we go about doing. Mm. our work. Yeah. How do you decide, you and your producers decide, well, who are we going to interview today? Mm -hmm. And how much does that relate to what people are going through or what they need to know? How do you decide what's news and what isn't news? Sure. Who's the expert that you bring on to explain policy and where do they come from? That's right. How do you decide what story on a a newscast should be at the top? What story doesn't even make it? Mm -hmm. How do you determine... Who should receive anonymity when you're doing an investigative piece? And why do you trust them? Mm -hmm. What is their agenda? Now, you can't do this every day with every story. But if you do it occasionally, you will start to build back trust. I'm convinced of that. If you are transparent about the mistakes you make, because we all make mistakes, Mm-hmm. And it it could be bad journalism or it could just simply be a mistake. How often do we concede that point? How often do we say, you know what? Yesterday we did, we said such and such a thing. That's not correct. Right. And explain how it happened. Exactly. I mean, we used to have this argument at the National. We'd have some little small thing that was wrong in a story. And we say, we got to fix that. We, we will devote 30 seconds tonight to saying mm-hmm. that, that was wrong. And there would be people in the newsroom say, oh, you know, we don't want to do that. It makes us look bad. And really, it was a small thing and blah, blah, blah. And I'd argue and others would argue that every time you do that, you build trust. Mm-hmm. People will believe you more when you concede that you were wrong on something. Newspapers, remember, they always have, they used to have that tiny little corrections box. The little box, box on, on E5 page. or whatever yeah, it is. Right. Yeah. But, but it did that. It, it was accountability. Exactly. Uh, where most people feel we're not accountable at all. Well, and with digital uh, articles now, you can just re-edit them so that the mistake That's is not right. there. Now, some places will put a correction on the exactly. bottom. This was changed because this was wrong. Right. It's a very nebulous process now that people are not sure, like... And you will read, here's how the New York Times edited their headline. Right. Seeing as you mentioned the New York Times, when they came out with their first 
big Me Too stories. Mm -hmm. They devoted pages to explaining why they were doing it, how they did it, who they talked to, whose names they protected, all of that before they even started the story. Right. That's where I think when you dig deeper on some of these trust surveys, that's where the problem is. They don't understand the process and they're not getting any help from us explaining what the process is. Now, this didn't start yesterday. This has always been a looming problem, which is just at its worst point right now. Worst point so far. So far. That's right. I don't want anybody to think, nor, nor you to think, that I feel that when back in my day that everything was perfect. Right. Those was the golden days of journalism, <laughs> all that crap. Because when you actually look at it, they, they weren't that golden, right? And yeah. we, we made a lot of mistakes too. There just wasn't the crowdsource corrections of what you did and the feedback in real time. Somebody had to like write you a letter saying fake news in the 1980s and mail that to the CBC headquarters. That's right. And challenge the CBC to, to explain it. And you know, you know what journalists are like. We... We're very defensive. Like to be right. <laughs> yeah. Of course we were right. You know, there's no way we were wrong. And, and, you know, and defend your people and all that stuff. And I understand that where that's coming from, and I've been there uh, myself. But when you're wrong, you're wrong, and you're hurting everybody. Now, the other part of the explosion between the 80s and the 70s and now is... You know, in those days, there, there were only a couple of us. There was Lloyd, and there was me, or Knowlton, or, or whoever uh, the anchors used to be. And you knew who all the anchors were. You knew all the, you know, the, Amer- the three American na- anchors. You knew who they were. If you went out on the street today and asked, you know, 100 people, name the anchors in Canada and the anchors in the United States. You probably wouldn't I mean, get I'd very many. I pay attention. Many. I don't think I could do it. I no, exactly. It's not that these people aren't good. Yeah. It's that there are just so many sources now. Yeah. There's so many options. And in so many cases, those options aren't trustworthy because they're not trustworthy. I think a lot of what we've talked about so far in terms of being upfront about mistakes, uh, in terms of biases and whether or not you choose to let them show... What I'm hearing a lot and what I think about a lot is like authenticity that, you know, people can smell, especially in this day and age, they can smell uh, an inauthentic uh, attempt to sell them information. And an interesting stat now would be that to a certain segment of the population, you are now more trustworthy as a podcaster than you would be if you were still sitting in the chair on the national as the face of the nightly news. Um, How have you found? podcasting to be different and to let more of uh, all the stuff you just mentioned you couldn't uh, show out? I think I'm more authentic because you hear, you hear how I feel about stuff. But I don't pretend that a, my podcast is a newscast. Right. Because it's not. It, it's just me talking with people I can access or friends of mine or, and, I, or, and I'm giving my opinion at times on, on certain things in a way I never did before. Um, that makes people trust you more, though, to certain people anyway. Yeah, you don't read my mail. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, they trust me enough to listen, but they, tr- they also trust me enough to get mad. Right. And that's okay. You know, I, I don't mind that. And I try to make room, try to make room for, you know, for their, their feelings on, on the program. I devote one day a week 
to listener stuff. You know, they write in about whatever it may be. And I read them, and some of them I absolutely don't agree with right. what they're saying. And that shows some time in the way I read it. I, I think people have to really be careful. And I know it's hard with somebody like me because they assume that I'm basically still doing what I used to do. They assume it's, a, it's the news. It's not the news. It's just me rambling. We can do certain things in the profession to be more authentic, to be more accountable, to be uh, less biased or at least present uh, biases less. But in the grand scheme of things, considering the way media has proliferated, is there anything we can really do to put journalism back on its course to trust? Or has that ship sailed? Like, there's too many sources of truth out there. It can be impossible to sort them out. How would the next Peter Mansbridge show up today coming out of journalism school? How would they find their path? I didn't go to journalism school. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not that I'm suggesting people shouldn't because they should and I support them and have supported them with a, a number of um, new programs in three different universities across the country. But I had a, you know, I had a strange route. Yeah, you got discovered. I was reading, yeah, exactly. I was reading your bio. Somebody heard my voice and thought, you should be in broadcasting somewhere. I had no training at all. But, you know, that was a long time. It was 1968. And when I, when I explained the story to young journalism students, they want to throttle me. Yeah. That it's just not fair. You know, they've saved up all their money. They've taken summer jobs. They begged their parents to help them get them through journalism schools. And here they're looking at a guy who reached the top. And uh, had, you know, nothing but hard work, which is part of what it all is. I think you, you, have to, you have to understand, and I'm not just talking about the audience here. I'm talking about the journalists as well. How important we are to the bigger picture of our societies. Like, if you believe in democracy, then you have to believe in real journalism, accurate journalism. Journalism that probes, asks questions, tries to understand why things happen, and is able to tell stories. It's not a forgotten art, but it's a not-discussed-enough art that the, the best journalists are the best storytellers. You know, they have the facts. It's one thing to have the facts. It's another thing to be able to tell the story in a way that will engage people. So you have to keep working at all of that. And you have to keep understanding that your audience is challenging you to be better and to be more accountable and to show that you're willing to go that route as well. I'm not ready to sign off on journalism and say its days are done. Mm. Its best days may be ahead. Don't buy the stuff about the golden years are past because they weren't that golden, as I said. And they could be in the future. And there's still some examples of great journalism out there. A lot of independent journalism uh, outlets that are funded by the audience to do specific work, like environmental journalism or activist journalism, etc. And some, you know, traditional stuff. Sure. I mean, we have people from The Star and... Well, yeah. City News, 680 News is right next door here. Local journalism every single yeah. day. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can... You can see examples of really good journalism in a lot of places. Sadly, you can also see examples of, uh, of where it's fallen down and has cost everybody yeah. in the long run. But, I, you know, 
you know, it's it's difficult times right now on a lot of fronts. You've got the challenge of trust on one hand. You've got the challenge of uh, resources support on the other hand. And uh, those two combined uh, can make things very difficult. We've all seen the the layoffs that have taken place, not just in our country, but, uh, you know, across the board in journalism. It's not good. You know, it's it's not good for anybody, but... um, but that too can be uh, uh, can be challenged by uh, doing a better job at the front end. Peter, thank you so much for this, and uh, thanks for all your work and podcast and on the national. <laughs> thanks, Jordan. It's been a treat. Peter Mansbridge is the host of the Bridge, obviously, formerly of CBC's The National, but you can find the Bridge every day wherever you get your podcasts. That was The Big Story. For more from us, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Nothing on there is fake news. Unless you think it is. After all, it's all in the eye or ear of the beholder. Seriously, though, if you have questions or comments or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear it. We answer it honestly and authentically, and you can give it to us by sending an email to hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca or by calling 416-935-5935 and telling us what you think. The Big Story is in every single podcast player, and of course, it is on your smart speakers. Just ask those smart speakers to play The Big Story podcast. You don't even have to say please. Joe Fish is the lead producer of The Big Story. Robin Simon is also a producer here. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Ryan Clark handled our sound design this week. Diana Kay is our manager of business development, and Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Together, along with myself, Jordan Heath-Rawlings, your host and executive producer, we're the Frequency Podcast Network, a division of Rogers. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. Yes, you can trust the news, and we'll talk Monday. In 2007... TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.